0: Welcome to Two Inch Heels, an autobiographical novel of my 11-week odyssey backpacking through Western Europe in 1973 at age 18, written and read by me, Cooper Zale. This is Part 22, Comrade Jen. On the train to Rome and finally checked into its youth hostel, on my own again, I encounter a number of young fellow travelers with various agendas including a bigger-than-life young woman and her more low-key travel partner. Note that I have in this episode the beginning of a continuing struggle to represent dialogue spoken with Australian and and in later episodes New Zealand accents. So bear with me because I think that big down-under drawl is important to my listener getting the characters. It was Wednesday, November 14th, and the morning sun lit the interior of the Basel train station, where I still sat waiting for the train to roam. I remembered the station for my first day on the continent six weeks ago, on my own for the first time since I'd just left Angie behind in London that morning. I remembered how intimidating it had been to step off the train at 3 in the morning in this big place, and see all the signs and schedule boards and languages I did not understand, having the challenge of figuring out how to purchase a ticket and board the train to Munich. That had been the beginning of phase one of my odyssey on my own. Now having just concluded phase two with Steve, I was starting my presumably final phase three on my own again, feeling now, finally, that the entirety of the odyssey was really doable. I had said goodbye to Steve yesterday evening in Moulot's where I had to wait in the train station for the next train from Bar aube to bring my passport and rail pass. It was a miracle that the station master had found my documents after they had fallen out of my jacket pocket as I boarded the train. Without that miracle, I would probably now be headed back to Paris to the U.S. Embassy to get a new passport and then quickly returned to the States, ending my trip several weeks earlier than anticipated. But instead, I was headed to Italy, as originally intended, with a new lease on life and fate. The whole loss of my documents experience had chastened me and made all my continuing issues with homesickness seem not such a big deal. A young guy with the requisite long black freak flag hair and bell-bottom jeans a suitcase rather than a backpack sat down across from me, said hello in English, and we were soon chatting. His name was Marcello, and he was Italian and also waiting for the train to Rome, in his case, heading home to his mom's house. He spoke limited English, but enough for us to cobble together a fairly substantial conversation, which covered the conventional topics where we were from and where we were headed. In his pigeon English, He also asked me where I'd been in Europe so far. Since we were waiting for the same train, and we still had time to kill, I gave him more of the long version, rattling off the countries and major cities I'd spent time in. He seemed interested, or maybe just otherwise bored, so why not listen to me rattle on? Among my sprinkling of anecdotes from my travels, I shared with him the one about staying with the American army brats in Munich and since sharing tales about drug use was a means for hippie peers to quickly build connections, and this sort of travel on one's own was all about doing that, I shared with him my story about smoking their killer hash with the Tanqueray Gin Chasers and getting really high. Well, that piqued his interest, and his eyes grew large and knowing. He asked if I had ever smoked hashish before, including in the States. I told him, like I was some expert on the subject, that we mostly had weed in the States, but I had done hash a couple times. He glanced around quickly and said quietly that he knew someone who sold the stuff if I wanted to buy. I thanked him, but told him I had a very limited budget, and with all my traveling from one country to another through customs, I was afraid I'd get caught with it. He acknowledged my concern, Though he said there were ways to get through customs, and he agreed that hashish was really expensive here in Europe, but then noted that you could get it for a hundred dollars a kilo in Morocco. He asked me how much a pound of marijuana costs in the United States, and I confessed that I had only bought really small quantities, no more than a quarter of an ounce. I of course loved talking about weed and hash, this way of bonding with my peers, and connected with him immediately because he seemed so passionate genuine and unguarded, though our main topic of conversation was one that you'd normally be guarded about. I mean, he was going home to his mom's house, so I felt an added kinship. He did seem obsessed with every aspect of hashish and its availability, and the more he talked, the more I realized, though he was just a few years older than I was, and he was going home to his mom's, that the someone he knew who sold hash might in fact be him. He might be what would conventionally be referred to as a drug dealer. I say conventionally because drug dealer was a pejorative term used by the older generation, their politicians and the media. Among my generational cohort that actually used illegal drugs like marijuana and hashish, those among our cohort who facilitated our use by selling the stuff were doing the rest of us an important service. So we looked on them favorably a necessary part of our subculture. Drug dealers, in our minds at least, were something else entirely. People in the inner cities that made a living selling cocaine and heroin and carrying guns to shoot it out with the police or rival dealers as necessary. We who lived in the mostly white towns and suburbs were pretty much in denial that at some point up the distribution chain Our comrades that bought a pound of weed and sold it by the ounce to the rest of us were probably buying from someone trafficking much larger quantities of the stuff for all purposes more like real drug dealers. With Time to Kill waiting for our train, and later on the train, we continued to talk on a range of topics, and at some point Marcello invited me to stay with him at his mom's place in Rome and said he would show me around the city Despite feeling that instant affinity with him and my acceptance of the buying and selling of marijuana and hashish at the retail level, I was unsure of whether I should take him up on his offer, but did not want to be rude. Was he really some sort of criminal trying to prey upon a naive young traveler, or was the universe coming to my aid? He seemed so nice and making such an effort to connect with me and offer me a way out of my cocoon of solitude but when our train finally got to Rome and he offered his hospitality again, suggesting I accompany him to his mom's place outside the city, I hesitated, part of me still unsure of what I might be getting myself into, while another part felt like I was being overly timid. Witnessing my hesitation, he backed off, seemed genuinely disappointed, but still gave me the phone number of his mother's place and suggested I call him I agreed to call him, though the timid part of me felt I should probably not follow through. The growing more adventurous side felt it would be a great opportunity to transcend the whole tourist thing and connect with a real Italian family in their home, in their city, like I had done with Angelica and Helmut in Munich and Giselle in Paris. So when Marcello and I parted company at the Rome train station, I was engulfed by that feeling of having bailed on yet another opportunity. and My spirits were on the low side as I made my way through the center city to the nearby youth hostel. Despite my reservations, that emerging more adventurous reach-out-to-others part of me was determined to follow through and call him. It would likely turn out to be great, I rationalized free accommodations, and a chance for me to meet and see how locals lived. I, of course, would be duly cautious at first and make sure things were as he said they were. But the Rome Youth Hostel quickly pulled me out of any funk. It was full of fellow backpacker types, male and female, sitting or milling about the big common room of the place. In line to book my bed, I connected with the guy in line in front of me from Canada named Morgan. He had fair white skin and a mop of curly brown hair and Clark Kent black plastic glasses. He was enrolled in college in Toronto, but spending his junior year abroad in Italy, studying European history and culture at the University of Milan. He was in Rome to see the museums in the Renaissance and classical Roman architecture. What made him particularly fun was that beside his nerdy academic side with his passion for historical architecture, he had a countercultural side too. He had an equally strong passion for radical politics, marijuana, psychedelic music, and the more intense psychedelic drugs like psilocybin, peyote, and even LSD, none of which I'd ever dared to try, but still found very intriguing to hear about. I had always loved talking about music with comrades who were also as passionate about it as I was. Part of my timidness was that I had never been good at talking about my feelings, but I made an exception talking about my feelings around a particular song, particularly those that inspired or soothed me. I guess I would inherited that timidness from my dad, who was mostly very guarded, even maybe unaware about how he felt about things in his life. But I could at least glimpse at his feelings when he used to sing to my brother and I most every night before bed when we were little. After paying for our beds, we continued to sit together in the common room and talk. I enjoyed Morgan's introduction to the context and nuances of his favorite musical genre, psychedelia, including his insights on the work of American bands like Jefferson Airplane, Cream, and Jimi Hendrix. British bands like Donovan, Pink Floyd, and Traffic, and the German electronic band Tangerine Dream. I was particularly intrigued by what he shared with me about the backstory of Pink Floyd's See Emily play, apparently seminal to the psychedelic genre. I shared with him I was only familiar with their Dark Side of the Moon album, which I really liked. Yeah, Dark Side is quite the tour de force, he noted, but that's mainly the work of Roger Waters. See Emily Play was written by Sid Barrett, the original frontman of Floyd, co-founded with Waters. By the time they did Dark Side, Barrett had already been kicked out of the band because they thought all the psychedelic drugs he was taking were making him mentally ill. Oh, wow, I said. I didn't know any of that. Morgan grinned and I could tell he was happy to share all this esoteric knowledge with someone who was really interested. Yeah, he continued, Baird is considered one of the main progenitors of psychedelic music. His use of all the weird feedback and distortion in his guitar work was very important in defining the genre. Wow, I said again, realizing that I wanted to say something more than just that, so Morgan appreciated the depth of my own thought, so I pushed forward. I only know Dark Side, I noted, using the shortened album name to sound kind of academic y like him. I like the spaciness of it combined with its critique of contemporary society. Indeed, he replied, with grey blue eyes under those Clark Kent glasses flaring. What a piece of work this crazy civilization we were born into. I nodded vigorously. We gotta find some sort of path forward to transform it, I said. He looked off in the distance and shook his head. Leary thinks there's some sort of path forward with psychedelic drugs like LSD. Barrett's lyrics and Emily, and he proceeded to sing two lines from the song. There is no other day, let's try it another way. I nodded and struck a thoughtful pose managing not to say wow for a third time like some whacked out stoner as I was struck by the metaphorical significance of those two statements. We were all where we are in the scheme of history and human development, but the approach to our world is our choice and we can make a very different one than our parents had. I've smoked a fair amount of weed this past year or so, and it certainly creates an altered set of perceptions of the world, I noted, but I've never done any of the psychedelic stuff. His eyes narrowed, and I could see the gears spinning in his head. LSD is like that altered perception you're speaking to ratcheted up orders of magnitude. Like I looked at my hand and felt like I could see the molecules in my skin. And then all around me, the fabric, the grid of the universe. He looked at me with eyes combining wonder and fear. Does that make any sense? Wow, I thought to myself. Here is someone who has actually taken LSD. He's talking about the fucking grid of the universe. I was duly impressed and reverent. I nodded my eyes wide. It completely does, I said. The fucking grid of the universe, indeed, I thought to myself. I was determined to really contribute to this conversation. I tried to channel my mom's best friend and my guru, Mary Jane, so I said, Yeah, well, perhaps we are caught up in a less profound, more human-imposed grid of hierarchy, really. What's that? He broke in. I could see the knowledge lust in his eyes. Well, my mom's best friend, Mary Jane, who's like a radical feminist philosopher, I prefaced, not ready to own this argument as my own, she believes that our path forward from our crazy civilization, as you called it, is to move beyond patriarchy. The rule of the father, he said, deconstructing the word. His eyes narrowed again and he looked off in the distance, massively spinning gears in his mind. He looked at me, obviously, for elaboration. So I continued. A pecking order of top-down control, superiors and inferiors, us and them thinking that she says has dominated, infected even, human civilization for the past 5,000 years. I threw in the infected to give it all a bit more juice. So what happened 5,000 years ago? The Sumerians? His gaze drilled into my mind. She says it started with the beginning of written communication. Phonetic literacy led to, I'm not sure I can explain it like she can, uh, a dominance of the visual sense over the acoustic and the others, creating the uh, alienated individual point of view, me over us and us over them, something like that. Wow, he said. It was his turn to say it, then continuing. The start of phonetic literacy was certainly around 3000 BC with the Sumerians. They were producing and trading things and had the need to keep records, but hardly anyone knew how to read, only the... His brow furrowed, his hand over his mouth, finally removing it. The religious and governmental elite, he was answering his own question. Hmm, that's really interesting. I've never heard that theory before. Yeah, I continued... Mary Jane was a close friend and collaborator with Marshall McLuhan, and his ideas that changes in communications technology transform the human mind, and with it, human culture. And so our conversation spun on for the next couple hours on a range of topics, as new people entered and others milled about the hostile common room. Sharing an interest in history, he enjoyed my thoughts on modern Russian history, and particularly the Russian anarchists. Mikhail Bakunin, and Peter Kropotkin, and the essentially anarchist themes in the paintings of Vasily Kandinsky. He was familiar with Kandinsky as an artist, but not the anarchist angle, as he was familiar with Tolstoy, but not so much about his anarchist leanings. He was pleasantly amazed by my stories of my high school history teacher, Mr. Peacock, who had taught the modern Russian history class and was, or at least claimed to be, a card-carrying communist. As I was flailing my arms around telling my lurid tales of Peacock's class, I realized that a big person who had been standing next to us just outside our conversational bubble for the last few minutes had actually been looking at us and listening to my story. Both Morgan and I turned our heads to look at her just about the same moment. Private school or public school, she asked looking straight at me and loud enough for the whole room to hear, several people in fact turning their heads to look at her. She was a physically imposing person, taller and stockier than I, with a big Aussie voice and an instantly recognizable charisma. During the headlights time again for me, I was dumbstruck. "'Where'd this peacock bloke teach?' she said, clarifying, tilting her head theatrically. "'Public or private high school?' I stared at her, still grasping for words. Jeans and plaid work shirt, long curly blonde hair, full rosy cheeks and the requisite pack slung over her back. She laughed and looked me up and down and then struck a silly pose with another tilt of her head. I know you can speak, mate. I've been listening to you. Finally, I snapped out of it and replied, Uh, sorry, uh, public. Bloody hell, she said swinging her big pack effortlessly off her back to the floor and banging her butt down on one of the two empty chairs at our little table. Where the hell did you go to high school, mate? Moscow? I laughed, and she lit up with a toothy grin as I did. I'm Jen, she said, putting her left hand between her breasts and thrusting her right hand out towards me across the table. I grasped her hand. Cooper, I said, and given her bigness and big energy, anticipating her about to crush my hand in hers, did my best to beat her to the punch, not wanting to come off like some lesser mortal. We squeezed each other's hands, hard, and she nodded approvingly, saying, A pleasure. Then, A yank, right? Midwest. Love your accent. I couldn't tell if that was for real or just putting me on. Americans often saying the same about her obvious Aussie drawl. She turned to Morgan, repeating the routine, getting his name and shaking hands. Hearing him speak, she said, Canadian? Morgan nodded and said London. Ontario, that is, not England. She grinned smugly. I rarely get an accent wrong. So, not quite Moscow, I said, returning to her original question. Ann Arbor, Michigan in the States. The Moscow of the Midwest, perhaps. Big liberal college town. She made another face and nodded knowingly, then raised her finger to put me on hold for a moment as she swung around, scanned the crowd in the hostel's common room, finally focusing in on someone across the room, and in her fog cutting voice called out, Oi, Shakespeare, over here. She used the same finger to beckon that someone to come join us at the table a young woman of more average stature and slighter frame, pack on her back, turned her head towards us, frowned, and turned her head back to the other female type she was talking to, said something, and then headed in our direction. Amidst everyone else's big wild hair, she had shorter, straight black hair, neatly combed and parted on the side, like Laurence's. She swung her pack off her back, leaned it against Jen's, and then sat down at the remaining chair much more adroitly and with much less of a plop than her partner had. Afternoon, gents, she said, nodding at each of us and then turning to her comrade to say, Milady. Jen looked back at her and with a twinkle in her eye said, Shakespeare, meet Morganstern and the Coopster. I couldn't believe she was already giving us nicknames. She continued winking at me and I have to compliment the Coopster on his magnificent low spark. I saw you strutting around earlier on those heels. More blokes ought to wear I could not figure out at first what the hell she was referring to until it hit me that it was in reference to Steve Winwood and Jim Capaldi's hit song, The Low Spark of High-Heeled Boys, with their band Traffic. But it wasn't the bullet that laid him to rest, was the low spark of high-heeled boys. Her comrade grimaced at the nickname Jen had apparently given her, chuckled and shook her head like they had been through the shtick many times, and said to us, To every other human being in this big, wide world of ours, I'm known as Sarah, and I would hazard a guess you are Morgan and uh, Coop. Morgan and I nodded. It's a pleasure, gents. She shook each of our hands. Her grip wasn't much less than her partner's. The lady is such a smooth talker, Jen said, mocking her friend's earlier reference as she brazenly reached over and mussed up Sarah's hair. Still looking at her comrade, who was now running her hand through her hair to put things back in place, Jen pointed at me the Coopster here was telling me about his commie history teacher. Again, she turned to look me square in the eyes. High school, right? Not college. Lefty college town, but public high school. How about that? So teed up by Jen, I continued my story about Mr. Peacock and his dramatic tales of the Russian Revolution, including the band of nihilists who finally blew up the Tsar, and then the story of Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks. Peacock would have been tied and feathered and run out of town on a rail in Toowoomba, where I grew up, Jen said. Indeed he would, Sarah nodded, probably in my Brisbane a more dignified thrashing. I couldn't wait to throw my question out on the table. So how did you two meet each other? Oh, that's a good one, Jen snorted. Do tell us, Shakespeare. I keep forgetting. Sarah shrugged and told the story of how they met as dorm roommates at UQ, the University of Queensland in Brisbane, that they'd roomed together for months before they finally became friends. She was afraid of me. She'd cower on her bed, Jen blurted out. Sarah flashed a scowl combined with a grin, and with a deliciously deadpan delivery, she chided her comrade. Let's stick with the you-keep-forgetting part. Sarah continued to weave the tale of how they became best friends through a series of misadventures, mostly initiated by Jen, but always dragging Sarah in to help sort out. She told of wild parties in and around their dorm room, one where a drunken Jen, in the midst of taking a class on ancient Egypt, would walk down the hallway naked, wearing only the white sheet off her bed, saying she was the goddess Isis, and demanding that people worship her, and the next day briefly suspended and almost expelled. Then there were the guys that Jen fell for and pursued, the resulting relationships never working out. Sarah's deadpan tone and cadence was really something. How many times did I have to tell one of your toey blokes, please go away and ignore Jen, she's just insane. Throughout Sarah's continuing narrative, Jen laughed and suggested some other story Sarah should share with us, like when Jen started the Young Socialist Club at her college and again ran afoul of the school's administration. It became clear that Jen was a bull in just about every china shop, and Sarah was at times Jen's acolyte, foil, personal peanut gallery, handler, fixer, and straight man, or I guess straight woman in this case. The whole time we sat there listening to Sarah's tales, Jen randomly flirted with guys in the room that came within range, complimenting them on their hair, their boots, and once even a guy's butt. That guy looked at her in disbelief and then made a point of ignoring her the rest of the time before bidding a retreat up to the male bunk room with a quick final nervous glance back at her. Then Jen would turn heads everywhere in the room with her big belly laugh, and once folks were looking at her, would call out to everyone what she thought was so funny. Needless to say, though never feeling worthy of her grace, I had a total crush on Jen, and maybe even more so on her partner Sarah, whose look reminded me of Giselle's stunning daughter Laurence. So when Jen said she and Sarah were going to head up to the female bunk room to stow their stuff, my timidness unfortunately kicked in and prevented me from right then and there just tossing out that the four of us should go out and search for a place to have dinner together, tossed out in a way to make it no big deal if they decline, but in the same way making it easier for them to say, yeah, what the hell. As they stood up and shouldered their packs, I was suddenly struck with the thought to at least provide Jen with her own impromptu nickname as the appropriate response to her tagging me with one and building our connection and my worthiness in her eyes. So it was a pleasure to meet you, Sarah, I said, using that word they had used when we first shook hands. And you, Comrade Jen, I said those last two words with my best Russian accent. She laughed and pointed at me. You got me, Coopster. Later, mates. They turned, worked their way through the crowded common room, and I watched their cute jean-clad rear ends below those big packs ascend the stairs to the bunk rooms above. So in the high-energy room still bustling full of backpacker types, Morgan and I were quickly sucked into a new conversation with two British guys from Manchester. The mention of their hometown triggered that great song in my head from the musical hair. Manchester, England, England, across the Atlantic Sea. And I'm a genius, genius. I believe in God, and I believe that God believes in Claude. That's me. Well, Unlike Claude, I didn't believe in God, having sorted that out a decade earlier, or even myself fully, and certainly needed a lot of work toward the latter. At Morgan's suggestion, we all agreed to head out to find a cheap place to eat. I still longed to be doing this with Jen and Sarah instead, but it would be rude to say no, and I figured I would better go with the flow we quickly found that the eating establishments broke down to basically two categories, Ristorante and Trattoria. The former had printed menus, waiters, and prices we could no way afford. The latter mostly fit our budgets, with generally no menus or waiters, and very simple, though delicious, cuisine. In Spain, the dish to buy at a restaurant on the frugal budget had been paella. Here in Italy, to get the most caloric bang for your buck, or load for your lira, though you generally needed a shitload of lira to buy anything, was what they called pasta, generally served with a marinara or cream sauce and bread. I was not really familiar with the pasta word, but soon understood it was a catch-all for the spaghetti, lasagna, ravioli, and macaroni I'd eaten many times in waspy Ann Arbor. Virtually all the Trattoria had the first three, but also a much broader array of other configurations of the formed wheat dough, including mostoccioli, cannelloni, penne, rigatoni, linguine, and vermicelli, plus an intriguing newly found format, gnocchi, little dollops of dough made with a mixture of wheat and potato flour. To get a little meat or cheese in your starchy meal, you'd pay a little extra and get the cannelloni, ravioli, lasagna, or pop for a meatball or two. Otherwise, you at least had access to free Parmesan or Romano cheese to sprinkle on top of your bowl of hot saucy noodles. As we all gobbled and slurped down big bowls of our chosen pasta format and drank decanters of cheap Chianti, Morgan and I swapped tales of life on the road with our two comrades from England's industrial heartland. Though I was the youngest at the table in chronological age, I had actually been on those roads through the European continent for nearly two months now, a lot longer than any of my other three fellow travelers, and I ended up in the unusual situation of being the center of attention and telling the most stories at the table. Those tales included... Parting company with Angie in London and heading to the continent on my own, staying and smoking hash with the US Army brats in Munich, the breathalyzer test in Cours, the homeless guy who bought us beers in the train station in Bern, climbing a mountain in Bavaria, my long day across Luxembourg and Belgium, the prostitutes along the Avenue de Clichy in Paris, the ride across France, the VW van with Zoe and Randall and the third degree from the Spanish Customs Police, the amazing fish market in Barcelona, and gruesome bullfight in Tormelinos, though not my travel partner wanting to have sex with me in Granada, and finally the German businessman who gave us a ride to Paris, popped for dinner and put us up for the night, and in the morning turned out to be a Hitler fan. Again, despite our three different countries of origin, there was immediate camaraderie between the four of us around our common generational themes, long or otherwise freak flag hair and bell-bottom jeans, the spectrum of contemporary music we had all experienced to some degree, from rock through soul and R&B to jazz, from Motown to Mahavishnu Orchestra and Patula Clark to David Bowie. Drug culture, particularly the availability of, in our experience with marijuana and hashish, plus the other exotic drugs beyond. Political activism in the context of a radical critique of conventional society. And of course, that shared urge to leave the familiarity of home and wander beyond the horizon, ginned up by our generational Greek chorus. Dylan's simile, On your own, like a rolling stone, and Steppenwolf's, like a true nature's child, we were born, born to be wild. Lou Reed's suggestion to take a walk on the wild side, and Bowie's to turn and face the strange. And all my stories were salted with the array of engaging young women I had met along the way. My original travel partner and hometown buddy, Angie. Norwegians, Osshild and anarchist, Bublil and Coeur. My perky host, Angelica in Munich. Crazy New Zealander, Miranda, along the Moselle, though not her sexual proposition. My Parisian host, Giselle's stunning daughter, Laurence. Plus Prudence, the hippie bard, and thoroughly fascist Jeanette wild red-haired Canadian Zoe and her magic bus. Surely Jen and Sarah would soon be grist for my stories as well. As we all got buzzed on the cheap Chianti, my stories got saltier and more lurid, and my three dinner companions enjoyed the richness of my travel tales and likely fantasized about their own possibilities still to come. They loved all the detail about the young women, and it occurred to me That everyone's libido was probably percolating like mine, since who among us backpacker types were having any real opportunities for sexual encounters or other sorts of relief in our travels, because where would you do it? We all stayed in same-sex bunk rooms with public bathrooms and mostly cold showers. Maybe Randall and Zoe in their VW van, but not most of us. Walking back to the hostel after dinner, I realized that I had forgotten to call Marcello. This morning I'd made a connection with him, and he seemingly with me, but his apparent life selling hashish had put me off. Now after spending the day with my fellow backpackers, Morgan, Jen, Sarah, and the two guys from Manchester, Marcello seemed like a distant memory. Still I felt I owed him the call, and to not do so would be rude. I used a payphone at the hostel to try and call his number he had given me for his mother's house several times, but no answer. I knew that I was going to feel guilty about it until I managed to contact him and follow through somehow, even if just to meet up with him somewhere for the day, perhaps. As I climbed into my now-so-familiar sleeping bag on my bunk in one of the big male bunk rooms of the Rome Youth Hostel, All the day's events replayed through my head. Marcello, the compelling, probable drug smuggler. Morgan's tale of seeing the grid of the universe on LSD. Quaffed and nicely buttoned down Sarah's deadpan tales of Jen. And then the big, charismatic, comrade Jen herself. And her nicknaming me so brazenly, with me returning the favor at least. If too chicken shit to invite the two Aussies to dinner. And finally, the pasta dinner with lots of wine, juicing my most lurid telling of my travels to my willing audience of Morgan and the two guys from Manchester, England, England. My willingness to hog that spotlight, play the tail-spinning Coopster. Certainly inspired by Comrade Jen, I was always at my most alpha putting on a show. So concludes the 22nd chapter of Two Inch Heel. Thank you for listening and putting up with my attempts to do those crazy accents. And stay tuned for the next chapter, where on my second day in Rome, I have an unexpected offer from Jen's partner, Sarah, to be her escort to venture out together to sample gelato, Italy's wonderful version of ice cream.